0: In its two centuries plus of existence, the U.S. has committed troops to conflicts overseas at least 182 times and counting. Congress has declared war 11 of those times, and not since Pearl Harbor, and certainly not during the administration of Barack Obama, who has initiated drone attacks in Pakistan and Yemen, bombing runs in Libya, airstrikes on ISIS, with his administration taking the position— that he does not require a declaration of war or really even any sort of new permission from Congress. So is he right? Well, that sounds like the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. The president has exceeded his constitutional authority by waging war without congressional authorization. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are at the Miller Theater at Columbia University. We're in partnership with the Richard Paul Richmond Center and the National Constitution Center. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our live audience here at the Miller Theater at Columbia University will vote to choose the winner and only one side Wins. Our motion again. The president has exceeded his constitutional authority by waging war without congressional authorization. Let's meet the team first arguing for the motion. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Gene Healy. Gene, um, you're vice president of the Cato Institute. You researched their executive power and the role of the presidency, right on target. Um, you have said in the past that our presidential candidates talk as if they are running for guardian angel, shaman, and supreme warlord of the earth, and we like it. We got what we deserve, you said. But well, I want to ask, though, have we had any elected officials who are non-supreme warlords in our recent history?
1: Well, I'm afraid I, I don't have anything good to say about any of the recent ones, but I do always tell people that Warren G. Harding gets a bad rap. <laughs> it's time America forgave him for Teapot Dome. Thank you, Gene Healy. And Gene, tell us who your partner is. The distinguished and charming Deborah Pearlstein. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Deborah Pearlstein. Deborah, you're also arguing for
0: the motion that the president has exceeded his constitutional authority by waging war without congressional approval. Uh, You are a professor at Cardozo Law. Uh, You served as the founding director of the Law and Security Program at Human Rights First. Uh, Like your partner, Gene, you believe that the president has overreached, uh, but you traced the problem back to the framers of the Constitution who made what critical mistake?
2: If I had to sum it up, I'd say they expected that the legislature would actually want to legislate
0: (laughs) and hasn't worked out ladies and gentlemen the team arguing for this motion again the motion is that the president has exceeded his constitutional authority by waging war without congressional authorization two debaters arguing against this motion please let's first welcome philip bobbitt Philip, you have a bit of a hometown crowd here because you are a professor at Columbia Law School and director of its Center for National Security. You are a constitutional scholar. Uh, You've been a history uh, don at Oxford. You've advised presidents on national security issues uh, since the Carter administration. You wrote a few years back that the seeds of confusion that surround the whole question we're debating tonight, presidential war powers, actually started building up 50 years ago, beginning with what?
3: I think it began with a number of senators experiencing buyer's remorse over the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution.
0: Philip Abbott. And Philip, please tell us who your partner is.
3: This is Akil Amar, who has been called the most celebrated constitutional scholar of his generation.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Akil Amar. And uh, Akil, you're also arguing against this motion that the president has exceeded his constitutional authority by waging war without congressional authorization. You're a professor at Yale Law. You have been described as, quote, commendably unorthodox. Congratulations. Uh, You are also the author of a lot of books, most recently America's unwritten Constitution. So in a sentence, tell me, who writes America's unwritten Constitution?
4: Uh, The American people. uh, We've given our hearts and minds to Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence, to Abe Lincoln's Gettysburg Address in the middle of an undeclared war, by the way, uh, to Martin King's I Have a Dream speech, to Brown v. Board of Education. These are all elements of America's unwritten Constitution.
0: So a lot of history in this story. And in this debate tonight, please welcome all of our debaters. Thank you. As we... Move on to round one. Round one opening statements by each debater in turn. And here, speaking in the first position, I'd like to welcome to her lectern Deborah Perlstein. She's an assistant professor at the Cardozo School of Law and former director of the Law and Security Program at Human Rights First. She is arguing for the motion the president has exceeded his constitutional authority by waging war without congressional authorization. Ladies and gentlemen, Deborah Perlstein.
2: Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to be here and thank you for the opportunity. The president has certainly exceeded his constitutional power by waging war without congressional authorization uh, for the following reasons. First, the text of the Constitution, the history are actually quite clear on the idea that power over armed forces is shared between the executive and the Congress. The executive would have the power as commander-in-chief to superintend the armed forces, but the vast majority of the power over the armed forces and over war-making in the United States, if you look in the Constitution, it's there under Article I, Section 8. It's given to Congress. They have the power to raise and support an army, to provide and maintain a navy. Congress also has the power to declare war. The reason this matters, the text matters, is because the purpose of the framers was also clear. The president would have the power to act in our national defense if it was necessary. But actually commencing war, risking huge sums in national blood and treasure, that no one man should have the power to do. Madison said, in no part of the Constitution is more wisdom to be found than in the clause which confides the question of war or peace to the legislature and not to the executive. The trust and the temptation would be too great for any one man. No president in the United States has declared or asserted an unlimited power to make war without congressional authorization. The Office of Legal Counsel, right, this is the office in the Department of Justice that counsels the president on how much power he has to use force abroad, um, recognizes in its memoranda right, limits that the president has to follow when he uses force without congressional authorization. And even this president, his OLC, said, look, you can only do this without Congress if it's in the national interest, and if the force that you're using is less than war. The problem today is that the conflict against ISIL in Iraq and Syria is even by the president's own metric, war in a constitutional sense. By January of this year, the United States had carried out close to 10,000 airstrikes in the region. We have 7,000 contractors in our employee, in our employee on the ground and 4,500 military personnel already serving in the theater. Okay, my opponents will say, but we need the flexibility. The president needs the ability to respond to new threats, to new dangers, Um, And that does matter. But in this case, that's not what's going on. There has been more than enough time, there remains enough time, for Congress to authorize the use of force. Indeed, the President has gone to Congress and asked it to authorize the use of force in the case of ISIL. Congressional authorization is an incredibly important signal. It signals our allies that we're serious about the fight. It signals our enemies that we're serious about the fight. And it signals, particularly in a conflict like this, to what our security friends call wavering neutrals in the region. We're as good as our word. For all of these reasons, the framers thought so. It remains a good idea. You need to vote for the resolution. Congress needs to authorize the use of force. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Deborah Prostein. And our motion is the president has exceeded his constitutional authority by waging war without congressional authorization. And here to argue against this motion, please welcome Philip Bobbitt. He is the Herbert Wechsler Professor of Federal Jurisprudence at Columbia Law School and a distinguished senior lecturer at the University of Texas. Ladies and gentlemen, Philip Bobbitt.
3: I agree. Congress should be on record about this. Congress should authorize war against the Islamic State, and I believe that Congress has. That the authorization for the use of military force in 2001 empowers the president to use deadly force against the Islamic State. Now, you may be told that the AUMF, as we'll call it, of 2001, authorized retaliation against al-Qaeda for the atrocities on 9-11, And therefore, it can't apply to the Islamic State because the Islamic State didn't exist in 2001. To see if this is as clinching as it sounds, let's take a close look at the joint resolution adopted by both houses of Congress and signed into law by the president that we'll be discussing tonight. That law is not simply about holding an organization responsible for the past attacks on the U.S., but about deterring new attacks, It is not even about one organization, al-Qaeda, but about plural groups. If the President determines that the use of force against the Islamic State is necessary and appropriate in order to prevent future acts of terrorism by the network of which the Islamic State was admittedly a part, which had authorized the attacks of 9-11, then Congress's language is quite sufficient to authorize the actions the President proposes. It is significant that the Congress agrees with our view. So they have recently passed, as we all know, legislation appropriating funds for air attacks on the Islamic State, which they would scarcely have done if they believed the President could not constitutionally execute the legislation they passed. It is also significant that the federal courts in the Guantanamo cases have unanimously accepted the view that the Islamic State is an associated force of al-Qaeda. Moreover, there are ample precedents for using congressional authorizations for war to apply to subsequent groups when later hostilities emerge from a conflict initially authorized. Finally, it is simply absurd to hold that the Islamic State would be free from those pre-existing authorizations on the ground that it has changed its name or denounced its former leaders. While this might make some sort of sense in a war of nation-states, in the wars we are currently fighting, new groups pop up all the time, change their names, denounce their leaders. Just two weeks ago, Boko Haram announced it was going to be part of the Islamic State. Would we really want a rule that required a fresh congressional statute every time a terrorist leader changed his name after he'd attacked us or tweeted an attack on his former allies? Congress the courts, and the president all agree on the constitutional and statutory proposition that Professor Lamar and I are asserting.
0: Thank you, Philip <clears throat> I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. Stay with us. And a reminder of where we are, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, finding it out over this motion. The President has exceeded his constitutional authority by waging war without congressional authorization. You've heard from... The first two debaters, and now on to a third, we're going to welcome to the lectern Gene Healy. He is a vice president at the Cato Institute and author of The Cult of the Presidency, America's Dangerous Devotion to Executive Power. He is arguing in support of the motion that the president has exceeded his
1: constitutional authority. Please welcome Gene Healy. Thank you. The president has exceeded his constitutional authority by waging war without congressional authorization. Or, to put tonight's debate resolution another way, the President does not have power under the Constitution to unilaterally authorize a military attack in a situation that does not involve stopping an actual or imminent threat to the nation. You may have heard that second formulation before. It's how candidate Obama described the limits of presidential war powers when he was asked about it during campaign 2008. And it came up a lot about three years later when President Obama unilaterally launched a seven-month bombing campaign against Libya. Not only was there no actual or imminent threat to the nation in that case, but ten days into the bombing, the President's own Secretary of Defense went on Meet the Press and admitted that Libya wasn't a vital interest to the United States. The President took us into our latest war in the Middle East – the ongoing conflict against ISIS, last August. Here again, there was no imminent threat. We have not yet detected specific plotting against our homeland, President Obama told the country in his nationally televised address. And yet he waited six months and over 2,000 airstrikes before he got around to sending a draft request for authorization to Congress, along with a cover note insisting that Existing statutes provide me with all the authority I need to wage war anyway. The central basis for that claim, as Professor Bobbitt notes, is the uh, 2001 AUMF, the resolution that Congress passed three days after 9-11, empowering the President to take military action against, quote, those nations, organizations, or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the September 11th attacks or harbored those who did. Now, nearly 14 years later, this war has gone on 10 years longer than World War II, four years longer than Vietnam, and counting. President Obama now argues that the 9-11 AUMF uh, allows him to go go to war with groups like ISIS that have not just distanced themselves from al-Qaeda, but have been denounced and excommunicated by al-Qaeda. Earlier this month, at a Senate hearing, Uh, President Obama's new Secretary of Defense acknowledged that the resolution may be broad enough to allow the President to wage war in Nigeria against Boko Haram, which recently pledged allegiance to ISIS on Twitter. Meanwhile, Obama administration officials admit that there's no end in sight to worldwide war-making. The war on terror will go on, quote, at least 10 to 20 years more. Which means, I suppose, that in 2032, when we're all filled with excitement about the uh, impending presidential contest between Chelsea Clinton and George P. Bush, (laughs) we can rest assured that the winner will get to use the September 2001 AUMF as the basis for his or her presidential kill list. This is not how constitutional democracies are supposed to make the most important decision that any society can make. I urge you to vote yes on the motion. Thank you. Thank you, Gene Healy. And the motion is that the President has exceeded his
0: constitutional authority. By waging war without congressional authorization and here to argue against this motion, please welcome Akil Amar. He is Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale, where he teaches constitutional law at both Yale College
4: and Yale Law School. Ladies and gentlemen, Akil Amar. Good evening. So you've heard this expression a couple of times um, from our distinguished opponents, AUMF. Let's just slow down a second and hear what what the AUMF is. It's the authorization of the use of military force. Here's the resolution. The president has exceeded his constitutional authority by waging war without congressional authorization. The AUMF is a congressional thing. I don't know how many of you have kids, but I've got three, and sometimes my wife and I sit like, what part of no did you not understand? What what part of the authorization of the use of military force are we not understanding here? Let's go over once again what that statute says because we've heard, well, Congress didn't intend this and didn't intend that. Congress uses words to express its intent. If they didn't want an authorization to be temporarily open ended, you know what they can do? They can put a sunset provision in that authorization that says this sunsets after a certain point in time. They did not do that. And they do do that in other laws. See the Patriot Act. Let me go, go over once again what it says. The president, the president is authorized to use all, part of all, don't you, necessary and appropriate force. Um, Against nations, with an S, organizations, with an S, and persons, he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the 9-11 attacks, or harbored um, such organizations or persons, okay, in order to prevent any future attack, okay? Now, um, if you know just general um, legal principles, you can have... Uh, persons and um, organizations who are aiders and abettors after the fact. They're, they're harborers after the fact. And that's what ISIS is. It's, it's an offshoot of, of Al Qaeda, as you've heard. Um, here's what, what winning a war actually means. Sometimes you smash one organization and it splinters, and now you have to deal with the splinters. And that's not fighting everyone around the world at any time. No one in this room is a member, was a member of Al-Qaeda, a leader. So it's, it's only certain organizations that have the same persons. Okay? Same persons, at least a, a subset of them. Um, same um, terror tactics. Same murderous purpose. Same target. Um, I invoked Lincoln earlier. By the way, you know that civil war? wasn't a formal declaration of war b- back then, but Lincoln was surely not exceeding his authorization, uh, his constitutional authority, because Congress actually authorized it, although not by a formal declaration, in the same way that Congress authorized John Adams, in the same way that Congress authorized Thomas Jefferson. We don't have to just pick the last 50 years, so let me, let me just close um, with uh, Abraham Lincoln. You know, just, he's a very simple, commonsensical fellow. He says, if, if you call a tail a leg... How many legs does a dog have? And the answer, ladies and gentlemen, is four. Because calling a tail a leg don't make it so. Okay? And changing the name doesn't mean that this is any different from the very forces that this authorization of the use of military force was centrally about. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Akhil Amar,
4: and that concludes
0: opening statements in this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is the President has exceeded his constitutional authority by waging war without congressional authorization. And now we move on to round two. In round two, the debaters address one another uh, directly, and they take questions from me and from you, our live audience here at the Miller Theater at Columbia University. The team arguing for this motion that the president has gone too far, Deborah Perlstein and Gene Healy, have argued that it's right there in writing. It's in the Constitution. Congress declares wars, not the president. That ISIL is an enemy in the conventional sense of conventional war, and therefore all of the normal rules should apply. But presidential actions like the bombing of Libya amount to one man unilaterally taking the nation. Uh, to war without, uh, in some cases, justification of true threats to the nation and that this is not how a constitutional democracy makes the most important decisions that it ever has to face. The team arguing against the motion, Akhil Amar and Philip Bobbitt, are arguing that indeed the president has the authorization to take the war to ISIL, that it is the same authorization uh, that was given to George Bush in 2001 after September 11th to defeat enemies such as al-Qaeda. It was inherited by Barack Obama. Obama, that its elasticity is a matter of practicality because the enemy changes, and it hasn't changed that much, that in a lot of ways, the guys in ISIL are the same people with the same tactics and the same target, us, as the target that was chosen by al-Qaeda on September 11th. I want to take that part of the argument to the team that's arguing for the motion and ask uh, about that notion that, in fact... The authorization given to George Bush in two thousand and one still applies primarily because we 're still fighting the same guys in the same extended war. Do you want to take that deborah Palstein
2: sure um, so I find the notion to use a word absurd. Uh, the text of the authorization for the use of force doesn't name them. Congress never conceived that ISIL was the group that they meant to be authorizing force again, in part because ISIL and even Al Qaeda in Iraq, as it used to be called by the United States, didn't exist in 2001. Um, and this group, just because it once had some association with Al Qaeda, that did exist in 2001, isn't it? You know, the United States is an offshoot of Great Britain in some fundamental way, but I'd like to think after a certain time and a certain set of disagreements, you can tell the difference but between de- one and another.
0: Deborah, do you concede the sameness argument, that there, are, there, they might be somewhat different people, different name, but that their game is the same?
2: I don't. In fact, it's not just a name. It's a fundamental mission. So when al-Qaeda attacked us on 9-11 and before, Osama bin Laden named as the United States its primary enemy. He declared war against the United States. He viewed the United States and its political operations and its actions in the Middle East as the source of the problem. ISIL is, in essence, an apocalyptic cult. And they do not take the United States as its enemy, per se, any more than they take anyone else. In other words, it's not just the name that's different. The mission of the group is okay, different.
0: Okay, let me take that to your opponents. Philip Bobbitt, do you want to respond to that?
3: Sure. The current leader of uh, ISIL, the Islamic State, al Baghdadi, said when he was released from our custody, where he'd been for some months, I'll see you next in New York.
0: And your silence speaks for the rest of your thought.
1: I'll take it back to Gene Healy. You know, the, as she pointed out, the uh, ISIS strategy is to, to focus on the near enemy. Uh, Al-Qaeda's strategy is to focus on the far enemy. The fact that ISIS has local uh, apocalyptic and monstrous goals uh, may explain why every major figure in the national security establishment, from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs to two heads of the National Counterterrorism Center, has said that there is no evidence that ISIS has plans or major capability to attack the homeland. Let's take that to
4: Akhil Amar. Well, he invoked a lot of people um, that I don't actually see in this authorization the use of military force. What I see is it talks about the president, not the Joint Chiefs of Staff or anyone else. In our system, we elect a president, and actually we elect him because we think he has good judgment. He tells us basically what his fundamental approach is, and actually we re-elected him, and that was true of Mr. Lincoln, and that's true of Mr. Obama, and he's the one who determines this. He has to have some evidence for it in good faith, and I've seen no evidence of bad faith. So there faith. must be Super some star.
2: limits to that proposition, right? The president determines he alone. So if the president determines alone, in a fit of peak that China is, in fact, now al-Qaeda, right? Does the authorization for the use of military force to authorize the president to go after those who attacked us on 9-11 authorize the president to use force and, against And, and how anyone? many
4: people um, who are in charge of China have any can, are the same people who are in al-Qaeda? And the answer is zero. Okay? There, there are a gazillion organizations in the world and nation-states, and they do not have any overlap whatsoever with the original al-Qaeda.
2: We detained people in Guantanamo who were from China. We let them go all, actually not all that long ago.
3: I'm glad you mentioned Guantanamo. What do you do with the fact that all the Guantanamo cases that have considered this, every single federal court that's considered this question has held that the Islamic State is in fact an associated Force with Al okay. Qaeda. What do you do with that? What do you do with the fact that Congress has authorized funds for air attacks on the Islamic State? You say, what would we do if Barack Obama decided to attack Brooklyn? What would we do if they decided to attack Norway? What would do? Well, one thing you would do is the Congress would say this is not appropriate, as the as the statute requires, but the Congress has spoken about this. What do you guys say about the authorization for air attacks on the Islamic State? Which is subsequent Congress. to AIDS.
2: If I took everything that Congress does as proof of its constitutionality, I would have to challenge, right, Marbury versus Madison. Just because Congress has passed a law doesn't mean the law Congress has passed is constitutional.
3: So you think the authorization for funds for air attacks on the Islamic State is unconstitutional? I don't think buy, like, Congress's authorization the for
2: the use of funds is constitutional, but I don't think we can take their authorization for the use of funds as a commentary on whether or not they think the president has the power to wage war without congressional can we authorization. Take a st- can it's, we take it's a,
4: a little second bit of- congressional authorization. See, there's the authorization of the use of military force, and then there's a second congressional authorization with the House and the Senate and the president once they actually know who's being bombed.
0: Let me move on to another question uh, to the side that's arguing for uh, the motion that the president has exceeded. Uh, Your opponents have, uh, on the one hand, while arguing that ISIL is essentially the same as the group that was specified in the 2001 uh, authorization, there, they also argue that the state of, in the state of the world today, war is a very changing thing, that it would be, as Philip Bob had said, absurd to have to issue a new resolution every time a new entrant showed up on the field, a new combatant showed up on the field, some permutation, uh, and, and that you just can't, you can't operate that way, which is a very compelling argument. I want to see what your response is to that, Gene Healy.
1: I think the president has uh, residual powers under Article II to deal with repelling sudden attacks, which uh, comes up uh, at the uh, Constitutional Convention. And I think you can be flexible with that. I don't think you have to be wedded to an 18th century understanding or uh, one that doesn't comport with modern warfare. But you do have to, for the president to legitimately use this reserved Article II power, it has to actually be... A threat to the, to the country. And was Libya, was to Libya be, a threat? Not in the remotest
4: sense. Let me take that again. to the
1: other side. Libya, your response, Akhil Amar.
4: I'll say something about Libya in one second. But, again, just re- remembering the statute, the statute is about not just repelling attack but preventing future attack. Now, if they've conceded on ISIL and ISIS, I'm happy about that. If, if that's now put off the table and now we're just talking about Libya, I'm happy to address Libya – and, For the record,
0: they have not conceded. Okay.
4: Well, let's. let I bad. know you feel you've
0: won the point, too, but too, they have okay. not conceded.
4: <laughs> um, so now on Libya, j- just like a simple point, you know, how many body bags were there in Libya? Um, and apart from one embassy um, a- a- attack, you know, this does not seem to me like full blown war. Um, uh-huh. And uh, and the, there is language in the War Powers Resolution that I think actually uh, authorized um, the the use of, of of force in that situation. And you could read the testimony. But 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 we know what war looks like. You know, Vietnam was a war, and there were body bags, fifty thousand of them. And we know what wars look like. Korea, there were no body bags in the Libyan intervention, and in that sense, it's much more like all sorts of things, what Ronald Reagan did in Grenada, all sorts of of uses of force that really don't rise to the level of full-blown war. Let
1: me just say that Professor Amar uh, was doing a lot better than Secretary of Defense Gates in that he was able to make that argument with a straight face. Uh, When... When Gates, uh, once on Congress and once uh, on 60 Minutes, tried to sell the idea that uh, launching thousands of Tomahawk missiles at another sovereign country wasn't war, he had to smirk. That was the line he was given to sell and did he not smirk? sell it. Did he smirk? Yeah. What did that look like? It, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to discern, but, it's, but it was clear. The corner of his smirk. mouth turned up. Phil Boppet.
3: Well, i just it. point out there was a U.N. Security Council uh, resolution on Libya. It's not – it wasn't done pursuant to a congressional authorization. It was done pursuant to a treaty. We can constitutionally wage war by at least four routes, repelling a sudden attack, as our opponents have, have noted, relying on the Article uh, Two power of the president, by a statute or joint resolution adopted by both houses of Congress by a treaty, as in, as in Korea or as in, as in Libya, and by a declaration of war.
0: I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion. The president has exceeded his constitutional authority by waging war without congressional authorization. Let's go to some questions. Any hands up? Sir, right there. What is the substantive difference between a declaration of war and an AUMF, and is there a different constitutional threshold for a president's ability to drop a bomb given one or the other?
3: There's there's a bit of a difference, as I'm sure my uh, partners here would agree. A declaration of war perfects a war. What does that mean? It's the way you might perfect a lean it allows for additional authority, the authority to blockade enemy ports, to intern enemy civilians domestically. It's, you move from a limited war to a total war in international law when you perfect the war by a declaration.
2: I, I don't quite agree with that. Um, Right, so, and, and let's take practice, practice and current practice as an example, right? Um, we, have, we used an authorization for the use of military force, the 2001 authorization of which Professor Amar is so fond, right, to invade Afghanistan and to detain and intern over the course of that war and indeed the broader war with Al-Qaeda, tens of thousands of prisoners and we repeatedly invoked the international law of war, international humanitarian law, the law of armed conflict, exactly those laws. So if we thought it required A declaration of war as such to do that, right? Everything we've done, more or less. Was that not a discretionary
0: move as opposed to a move compelled by a declaration of war to trigger international conventions, et cetera? There there was no obligation. I would think that their argument is there would be no obligation.
2: So the United States has an obligation under its treaty commitments, which, after all, the supreme law of the land, to observe that law, law of war, in any armed conflict, right? And it would say it applied here.
0: Okay, let's go to another question.
3: Thank you very much. Uh, This is for the group that was against the declaration. What level of separation would you see from an affiliate of Al-Qaeda and the perpetrators of 9-11? Would you need a new authorization of military force? I suppose if there were no evidence on which the president could make a determination that that an attack on that party or or that, that group would or could reasonably be thought to deter future attacks on us, if the uh, action taken were so inappropriate or so bizarre so far-fetched, if the group itself did not have, has never had, did not share the objectives, the weapon sources and funding with the persons and groups that aided the perpetrators, financed them and planned the attacks on 9-11, uh, yes, I think that would go beyond the uh, beyond the statute. I just emphasize this one point. When we start talking about all the crazy things the president might do, all the odd groups he might suddenly decide to make war on, we have not silenced the Congress. We haven't stopped our political process. When the president really does decide that... Uh, I don't know, the New York Yankees or uh, Norway or something is the next associated group. We have ways of stopping him. And the way we do it is not by both houses of Congress approving air attacks.
0: Gene Healy, can you respond to the first part of Phil, Philip Bobbitt's answer in which he spelled out a scenario in which he would think that a group that wants to do us in would require a new resolution because it would be different enough?
1: Well, the administration has changed its own criteria for what it includes in Associated Forces, a term that doesn't appear anywhere in the AUMF. It used to require co-belligerency with al-Qaeda. ISIS is not a co-belligerent with al-Qaeda. It's an organization that is not only in competition with al-Qaeda, but at times actively fighting al-Qaeda affiliates. I think at some point you have to read that organization out of the definition, and they were uh, concerned about the legal basis for this and how open-ended it was uh, two years before they shifted to, to uh, expand their own definition to allow ISIS in. So, Professor Baba, you've alluded to the president's
0: determination that uh, ISIL is an affiliate or associate of al-Qaeda. Uh, is there
4: a standard of review here for the president?
3: Yes, I think there is. Let me make this absolutely uh, clear. There are many persons who believe that the President's Article II powers, standing alone, would be sufficient for him to wage war against the Islamic State that has attacked our troops, that has attacked our allies. That's not the position that Professor Ammar and I are taking. We want the Congress involved. We think congressional authorization is crucial. And the real review, as you say, isn't so much judicial review. It is congressional review. You've got to go back and get funds from Congress to actually fund those airstrikes. And that's what the president did, and that's what the Congress adopted.
1: Professor Bobby, you have a pretty broad view of what appropriations authorize. I believe you said in 2013 that the very fact that Congress funded bunker busters Meant that they couldn't be surprised if the president decided to launch them against Syria. It's sort of if uh, I lease my, you know, if I give my employee a company car, I should not be able to complain if he takes it on a joyride.
3: Maybe not, but if you give him a tank, you shouldn't be surprised if uh... if he
1: uses it to invade another. <laughs> if
3: he country. doesn't go to the, go to the movies with it.
0: One more question.
4: Thank you. This is for the uh, against side. Uh, You seem to be saying that uh, Congress has provided authority but also should provide uh, additional authority for strikes against ISIS. Uh, If Congress does vote on a new authorization and that authorization doesn't pass, where does the president's authority stand at that point?
0: Does that change the game?
4: Well, it all depends on what it says, but our position is Congress already has spoken and spoken about as clearly as it is possible to speak in the English language.
0: So a new resolution refusing to extend the president's authority to ISIL by name would still leave him empowered by the 2001 well,
4: the, the, authorization. Well, the way to change law in our system is to pass a new one, and it's possible, it's very easy to pass a new resolution that passes the House And passes the Senate and is signed by the president that says the 2001 authorization of the use of military force is hereby repealed. And section two can say, and in its place, the following shall be the rules. And the rules could have um, uh, tighter uh, uh, restrictions on scope of hostilities. They could have sunset provisions. They could have all sorts of stuff, just like you can have a new tax law or a new... Uh, antitrust law uh, or, or any new statute really on, on any topic is, where Congress has already legislated. Is he right about that analysis, Deborah Pearlstein?
2: Is he right about it'll depend what the new authorization says? It'll certainly depend what the new authorization says, right? But part of the purpose for that is to clarify exactly what we're doing and against whom we're doing it. Um, and I think the sort of notion that the 2001 AUMF was sufficient to get us through pretty much anyone in that messy Middle East because they're close enough um, is not only a legal error, it's a strategic error of the most profound sense. We don't want to lump them together. They're different groups. And if we do that, we only strengthen both of them. I think it's that strategic error that the president is most worried about.
0: And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is the president has exceeded his constitutional authority by waging war without congressional authorization. On to round three, closing statements by each debater in turn. Here to summarize his position in support of the motion that the president has exceeded his authority, Gene Healy, a vice president at
1: the Cato Institute and author of The Cult of the Presidency. Thank you. To agree with our opponents on tonight's motion, you'd have to accept some pretty extraordinary propositions. You'd have to believe that the president has not just the power to repel sudden attacks, but the right to launch them. You'd have to accept the proposition that three days after September 11th, Congress delegated its war powers to the President in near perpetuity. One Congress, one vote, one time. You'd have to swallow the notion that seven months of regime change bombing in Libya isn't war for constitutional purposes. It isn't even hostilities under the War Powers Resolution so long as, and this is the actual argument they've made, the the administration, that is, it's not hostilities so long as the country we're bombing can't easily hit us back. That last one has what I think are pretty staggering implications in an age of remote-controlled warfare. It's also, I have to say, a somewhat grotesque doctrine for a humane internationalist president to advance. Put starkly, it says, killing a bunch of foreigners isn't war. War is what happens when, a, when actual Americans might get hurt. Then it's serious. You might even need congressional authorization, unless, of course, our president thinks there's an emergency threat to our humanitarian values, as in Libya. Well our constitutional values demand debate and authorization before the resort to deadly force. They demand a vote. Tonight, please vote yes on the motion, the president has exceeded his constitutional authority by waging war without congressional authorization. Thank you. Thank you, Gene Hilly.
0: And with that being the motion, Akhil Amar, professor at Yale Law School and author of *America's Unwritten Constitution: The Presidents and Principles We Live By*, is here with his closing statement.
4: So, um, you've heard it suggested by our distinguished opponents that the president can't go after ISIL because it's a, a different group than Al Qaeda. Uh, Uh, And you've heard questions about, well, how similar this has to be. Here's at least one just very basic point that has gone unrebutted. Some of the leaders of ISIL were the leaders of Al-Qaeda on 9-11. And that's not true of Norway or the New York Yankees or Brooklyn or the leaders of China, for that matter. So the authorization of the use of military force that Congress passed Was not limited, it didn't mention Al Qaeda by name. It talked about other organizations that may have aided or harbored Al Qaeda either before or after the fact. It said its purpose is to prevent future attacks. It has no sunset provision. And yes, these folks are sometimes at odds with each other. Frankly, that's what winning a war means, that you want want to divide the the folks on the other side. You want to have sufficient military strength so that they start to, to squabble amongst themselves. That's actually how you win these conflicts and serve the ultimate purposes that are emphatically authorized by Congress preventing this from happening again by affiliates of the same organizations that hit New York the first time.
0: Thank you, Akhil Amar.
4: And the motion is, the
0: President has exceeded his constitutional authority by waging war without congressional authorization. And here to argue in her closing statement in support of the motion, Deborah Perlstein, a Cardozo law professor and former director of the Law and Security Program at Human Rights First.
2: Thank you. So I would like to know the names of the members of ISIL that were Part of al-Qaeda when it attacked us at 9-11. The leader of ISIL al-Baghdadi, right, was radicalized when the United States invaded Iraq after 9-11, another nation that was not responsible for the attacks of 9-11. I think the fundamental point is this. Right? There is a difference between Al-Qaeda and ISIL, enough of a difference that there needs to be new authorization, and the president himself, the expert that Professor Bobbitt suggests we look to first, agrees with that, which is why he's gone to Congress. More broadly, the framers of the Constitution wanted it to be hard to go to war. They imposed a series of checks in order to make it hard. We were going to have appropriations for military funding in the full view of God and everyone. Every two years, the Constitution requires it. Now we fund military operations substantially uh, through uh, funding contractors, through different departments. The funding is hidden. Congress, and Congress's ability to say, this is the war we want to fight, these are the reasons, these are the people. Congress is one of the last and most significant checks we have of limiting, constraining, in any way slowing the march to war that we might otherwise be inclined to take. The president has asked Congress to help us define what that war is. Um, we should keep this one last check. You know, I was briefing some young congressional staffers last week on what this would mean if they passed a new authorization, and they despaired of Congress taking any action. You can tell them it's not despairing. We think you should take action. Vote for the resolution in this debate.
0: Thank you. Deborah Perlstein. And the debate is this. The President has exceeded his constitutional authority by waging war without congressional authorization. And here's summarizing his position against this motion. Philip Bobbitt, a Columbia law professor and former director for intelligence at the National Security Council.
3: Why is your vote important tonight? It's because many people in our country have been thoroughly misled into doubting that of which they should be confident. The legal basis for the president's actions against the Islamic State, and feel confident about widespread popular opinions of which they should be very dubious. One of those opinions is that the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Nigeria, Yemen, Somalia, and Libya have nothing to do with each other, that a global terror network is just a fantasy, full of sound and fury. Another is that the Congress must adopt a declaration of war, or yet a new authorization, which the President does not say is required, to authorize an otherwise constitutional war. Pressure groups have become quite eager to frustrate government action by mobilizing public opinion on the grounds that the Obama administration is acting unlawfully. And we've seen this in area after area. We hope you won't be a party to this. The interplay between the President and the Congress should not be a game that has the zenith of insight in the question, if that's what you meant, why didn't you say so? Rather, the strategic and moral problems we all know we face should inform our opinions as well as our decisions.
0: Thank you, Philip Bobbitt. And that concludes closing statements in this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is... The President has exceeded his constitutional authority by waging war without congressional authorization. So it's all in now. I have the final results. The motion is this. The President has exceeded his constitutional authority by waging war without congressional authorization. To remind you, the team whose numbers have changed the most between the first and the second votes will be declared our winner. Let's look at the first vote. In the first vote, 27% agreed with the motion, 33% were against, and 40% were undecided. It's a high number normal for, for us. The second vote went like this. The team arguing for the motion, their vote went from 27% to 38%. They picked up 11 percentage points. That is the number to beat. Let's see the side against the motion. They went from 33% to 53%. They picked up 20 percentage points. That means the team arguing against the motion has won this debate. The motion being the president has exceeded his constitutional authority by waging war without congressional authorization. Our congratulations to the team that argued against. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held at Columbia University's Miller Theater in New York City. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosenkrantz is chairman. Maureen McMurray, Taylor Quimby, and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the engineer. Clea Chang is director of production. Chris Kamakawa is our researcher. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit IQ2US.org. And to hear the full unedited version or to sign up for the Intelligence Squared podcast, visit NPR.org forward slash Intelligence Squared. This debate was brought to you with generous support from the Richard Paul Richmond Center for Business, Law, and Public Policy at Columbia University and from the National Constitution Center through a generous grant from the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed during this program are those of the program participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you with visionary support from the Conrad Davis Family Foundation, David A. Coulter, the Rosencrantz Foundation, and more. From Intelligence Squared U.S., thank you.